In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to a very special episode 34 of the Feelin' Film podcast. Why is this particular episode special, you ask? Because today, Patrick and I are discussing The Prestige by Christopher Nolan, a magical masterpiece that we both consider one of our favorite films of all time. Man, oh, man. (laughs) You don't know how excited I am to talk about this movie, and I am almost just sad because I know that we won't cover nearly as much as we want to. I mean, this is like a week-long conversation for me and you, isn't it? It really is, and it has been an ongoing conversation for us for many years. So it's pretty awesome to get to finally discuss this one with each other in this format. Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, we were talking about this offline a few minutes ago, just hope, being hopeful that we can hit everything we want to, knowing full well kind of going in that we probably won't, um, but just hoping we can do it justice. And uh, this is a film that is really high on both of our lists. I mean, it's one we watch repeatedly, and there's just so much depth to it. So I'm I'm very excited too. I'm I can't wait to get into it. Man, I <laughs> I just I'm thinking about it, and I remember as we as we go. There's a little inside baseball for you listeners as we as we go through these movies. You know, we were thinking about the things that we're going to take notes on, particularly our connecting points. And I remember sending you a message and I said, I don't even know to where to begin with this. I mean, I just there's there's so much here that we could talk about and go through. And I mean, just from the the narration and, and the twist endings and, and the meta narrative story and Hugh Jackman. I mean, it's just such a wonderful movie experience and this is definitely if not my top movie one of my top fives for sure this is my favorite chris nolan movie probably and i don't know if there's a there there might be a distant second but this is by far uh at the very least my favorite chris nolan movie yeah mine as well and we're both i mean huge fans of christopher nolan and his entire filmography so from for us to say that is pretty big deal and mm-hmm. I would I would agree. I mean, I love every single one of his films immensely, and yet there is still a definite separation between the prestige and anything else. It just it's a movie that is so like I said, it's magical. We're gonna use the word over and over because I, I watched it again the other night for the podcast and I had my kids watch it for the first time and um it, it was they enjoyed it. They loved it and it, and I was transported <laughs> that's a pun. <laughs> Did you get that? I was a transported man uh, (laughs) right back into that amazing feeling that I have every time I watch it. But before we get to it, because we could easily just run on and right down that road. I am curious what you have been up to recently because we aren't getting to talk a lot uh, these last few weeks. I know you've been really busy at work, and so we haven't gotten to have our normal everyday communication. So I, like our listeners, don't actually know what you've been up to. And I'm just wondering what you've been doing. Well, I enjoyed the Thanksgiving holiday with my family. And uh, hopefully a lot of our listeners did the same. I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, not on the choo-choo. I went uh, with my wife and my little boy. We went and visited her dad and his family. And on the way down there and while I was there, we had a few days just to relax. 
And I got a chance to start reading. I didn't finish them, but I get a chance to start reading a couple of books that I picked up uh, maybe a few weeks ago. Now, if you guys remember a while back, I posted about the Back to the Future book that I got at a fire sale that our local Books A Million was holding because they were moving to a, a different city. Well, there were two other books that I saw and I was tempted to get them, but I decided to hold off and try to find them cheaper on Amazon, you know, through the used book market, which I did. And so when they finally came in a few weeks ago, I got really excited, but didn't have a chance to actually start reading them until this, this past weekend. And the first one, they're by a couple of comedians. One is by Jim Gaffigan and it's called Dad is Fat. <laughs> Another one is by a comedian named Dimitri Martin and it's, uh, this is a book. Now I'm not going to give you rundowns of the the comedians themselves because they're they're both you know if you know, they're fairly famous i mean i know not everybody knows every comedian or whatever but the thing i enjoy and have enjoyed about these books is that it's really been fun to i'm a fan of the the comedians themselves and so seeing their stand-ups great but seeing how they write and kind of hearing their voice in book form is an interesting and equally hysterical experience for me. Uh, the subject matter of Jim Gaffigan's book is obviously about him being a dad. He tells stories about times with his kids, with his wife. His introduction to the book is fantastic. He does a little love letter to his kids and saying, uh, you know, I'm sorry that you're all pale like me, but that's, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then Dimitri Martin, whose comedy is really just sort of dry, uh, straight, just kind of you know, uh, straight faced comedy. Uh, he uses a lot of, um, visual gags and this book is filled with those as well. And it's just been really a lot of fun to, to read these books and get a history, not history, but just kind of get more of a, a sense of these comedians from, uh, from their written voice, but at the same time, kind of hear that same sense of humor that I'm used to in their stand up. And and they these aren't these aren't recent books. I think the uh, Dimitri Martin book came out in 2011, and then the Jim Gaffigan book came out in like 2013. So they're not uh, they're not brand new, but they're new to me. And when I saw them on the bookshelf, I I just I read the back and thumbed through a few of the pages, and uh, just realized that I, I really wanted to get a copy of these. So I've been reading those, and they're they're lots of fun, and I hope to get them finished maybe in the next couple of weeks because they're pretty fast reads. Interesting. I had never heard of either of these gentlemen until you mentioned those books to me. So I guess I will have to look them up and see what they're all about. Uh, is there... well, Jim Ga yeah. yeah, Jim Gaffigan's real famous for a uh, particular bit that he does on Hot Pockets. And so you can kind of cue that up. And I you... know that, actually. Hot I did not Pockets! Know, I did not know that was him, but I am yeah. familiar with the Hot Pockets. He also has that, that, that crazy, like, falsetto voice character that he uses to kind of make fun of himself like this guy talks about hot pockets a lot you know and i he does that a little bit in the book you can kind of pick it up but um yeah so that's jim gaffigan and dimitri martin's not i mean he's again i, I don't want to say he's well known or he's not well known he's well known to me but you know of course i didn't know him at some point and now i do so he's a lot of fun as well very interesting i'll have to like i said look them up and and try to get some of their their stuff if it's on youtube or somewhere i would assume they have comedy out there videos yeah. floating yeah. around the internet for sure and if any of our listeners want to uh help me out you can post some stuff in our facebook group uh linking to those guys 
Oh, that'd be awesome. Well, I have watched a few things this last week, uh, caught up on some things from both a long-time watch list from a year or two ago, and then something very recent that I missed out on. Those two things, we'll start with the first one being uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, and I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name perfectly correctly, but this is a, a filmmaker who started off very, very long time ago. I mean, in the 50s, he was making movies. And after the you know 70s came around and Frank Herbert's Dune uh, released, I don't remember when it came out, but uh, Jodorowsky began trying to assemble a team to make his version of Dune. And this is a somewhat interestingly well-known story. I don't know that it's out there for the masses, but many people know that David Lynch eventually came along, took over the Dune movie, uh, made it in the 80s, and it did not do very well. Um, But that was his project. This was Jodorowsky's project. And what this is, is it's a documentary. So, hey, you should uh, be proud of me for watching a documentary. Absolutely, man. Anytime. That just gets kudos. Even at subtitles. Because um, <laughs> it was Double foreign, points for Aaron tonight. Largely foreign language documentary. But <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Dune franchise itself, the books, the series, the the mythos that surrounds it. And I've always wanted a, a, a good adaptation of Dune. Particularly, I would love to see a TV series done in the way of like a Game of Thrones. It really, with high production values could be an amazing sci-fi epic and recently the rights to dune both movie and tv were purchased uh, by a major studio and that's kind of what triggered me to go back and watch this document documentary finally so jodorowsky has put together this team and and it goes through the history of him you know attempting to make this movie and it's absolutely fascinating to see a couple of things one being his vision which is kind of bonkers. He changes some things about the the con, you know, the story um, to make it his own, and we get to kind of go through that process with him. He he's explaining why he's making story changes, which is very intriguing to me. Um, it's something that you know, I I just I've always you know, he's thought of movies as adaptations as being straightforward. They should always be straightforward, right? You should always just do exactly what the book told you, but kind of getting to get inside of a director's head and see how he translates what a book happens in a book to what might actually work in a film was really, really cool. Um, Jodorowsky has a book that he carries around and it, and he was pitching the movie and it's basically the entire movie in drawn uh, storyboards and I mean it's it's gigantic it's like this this thick I'm holding up my hands you guys can't see me but it's like really really thick and it's just it's a really really intriguing uh, story the team that he put together for this went on to do incredible things uh, Geiger who created the alien uh, franchise alien itself ended up going from this with the screenwriter that um Jodorowsky had brought on to do Jodorowsky's version of Dune that team he and Geiger ended up going on to do Alien so it's almost like if he didn't have this project 
we never would have had Alien because these guys never would have been brought together. It's 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 an incredible uh, process that took place, and so really interesting thing. If you have any any interest at all in Dune, this Dune itself as a book or a series, um, the old movies, or if you just want to get a look into both the highs and lows of what the creative process is like, because that's really at the heart of what this documentary is, is showing us a director whose vision was so, so strong and so unique and surreal that ultimately that's what cost him getting his movie made. The studio couldn't get behind him. And so it's both inspiring and depressing at the same time (laughs) in a lot of ways, because you see how amazing his attempts were, how dedicated he was, but you also see, you know, him losing that. And his project and his passion just, just being swept aside. So really cool story for, for what it's worth. Is that streaming anywhere? I do not believe so. I think I rented it. I, okay. Well, yeah, so it's streaming somewhere, but just to pay for it. So, okay. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not a free streaming. Yeah, sad, but it, true. It okay. is sad. But it's, it's definitely um, a very well-made documentary as well. So it's, it's one of the better quality uh, done documentaries that I've seen. So the, Very cool. The other thing that I watched that I just want to mention briefly, and I won't go too deep into this because this is a movie that I would love to talk about in depth sometime with you once you've seen it, but back in August, we were going to cover Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, it's a little-known uh, animated film that was coming out of Leica Studios. Uh, this is a group that has done previous work on the Box Trolls, and some other things, some stop-motion paranormal, I believe, maybe Frank and Weenie. Uh, I think those are in their uh, filmography. But they do stop-motion stop animation. And this movie was kind of uh, not marketed as big as things like A Zootopia or A Finding Dory uh, were from Pixar and Disney. So we ended up nixing it from our, nixing it from our schedule due to constraints and just needing a break from theater movies. And I, I almost regret that now, not necessarily because of not getting to do the podcast on it, but it did not allow me to go see this in the theater. And I'm desperately wishing I could have thrown my movie, my money at the studio uh, by going to see this in the theater and supporting them. Uh, this is unquestionably my favorite animated film of 2016. I was very high on Dory, very high on Zootopia. Kubo and the Two Strings blew it out of the water for me. Um, it also got my kids both of their, I guess, four thumbs up of approval in total. Uh, <laughs> they they agreed that it, we ranked them Kubo, Dory, and Zootopia in that order. And it is such a genuine joy of a story. It is, it's unique. It's not a retread. It's not a sequel. It's not full of just trying to be culturally relevant with its jokes. Um, it's a hero's quest, and it's got a unique magic system that you've never seen anywhere in the world before, most likely. Uh, you know, who in the world makes magic out of strumming some kind of stringed instrument with origami paper? Like, it's 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 crazy that this idea came to life in the way that it did. It is very heartfelt. Um, the voice acting is really well done. I, I thought that Matthew McConaughey was going to be a problem for me. And he was just going to ham it up, and he ends up nailing it. He he is oh, very no. hammy at times, but it's appropriate <laughs> the in the context of the story. 
Did we get an all right, all right, all right? We, we did not get an all right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay. Maybe if this wins the Oscar for Best Picture, he can come up there and all right, all right, all right again. All right, all right, all right. All right. But um, not Best Picture, Best Animated Picture. Let me clarify. But yeah. anyway, I highly recommend Kubo and the Two Strings. It's it's out now to rent. It's out on video on demand. Go check this one out. Watch this with your kids. Watch this as a family. It is just a pure story and an adventure. And, and it's not like anything we get in the movies these days. It's unique. It's new. It's fresh. And it's really special. So I'm high on it, and I think it was awesome. And I hope that you and I get a chance to talk about it eventually down the road. Yeah, we'll make it. We'll make it a point to do that. I'll put it on my list to 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 watch in the near future. Uh, as if there's not already enough on there. But uh, if, yeah, it if, didn't have to be if, the nearest. But I'm saying if there's a, <laughs> if there is a uh, if there is a scheduled episode coming up that uh, we're putting Kubo in, then it will definitely make the top of the list at that point. So we can we can put that as incentive at least. Sounds good. Well, with all that out of the way, I think it's time for us to get started. So let's talk about magic. Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it because of course you're not really looking. You don't really know work it out you want to be fooled. okay Patrick every time I hear that it gives me chills I, can't, I cannot hear that ending slash opening sequence of the prestige <laughs> without getting chills and yeah is that one of the most quoted movie lines ever uh, I if anything it is in my head because <laughs> two reasons one michael kane is the one talking about it he's the one you know selling that but it's also a an incredible line that has a ton in it you know you look at you look at the prestige as a movie and you're beginning to see you know you see after watching it that we were experiencing the three parts we're experiencing, you know, the pledge and then the turn and then finally the prestige. So to hear that at the beginning and the end, it's, it just wraps the whole movie up, uh, just in a, in an incredible way. And, uh, and yeah, I just, there, there, you know, there are movies that are quoted the, whose, whose lines are quoted because they're funny. There are movies whose lines are quoted because, they are inspirational. I think this is a quote that's that's quoted because it's relevant <laughs> and because it has a, a a a just a multitude of levels to it, and uh, it's just it's great. I love it. Love it. Yeah, me too. And I I think we should just 
kind of start there because, you know, that's what everybody knows. Everybody knows the now you're looking for the secret line, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. That's what that's the line we're talking about. Yeah. This final line that is kind of uttered um, that wraps this whole movie up and makes you just go, oh, (laughs) it's time to reflect. And it makes me think about the concept of us as humans and our desire sometimes to just not want to face reality. And I see that happening a lot in this film, of course. Um, But we just, we, we, sometimes we kind of want to be deceived. You know, we don't want the truth. And that's, that's what this is really saying. The it's got, it's giving us the idea of wanting the amazement of not knowing and ultimately being disappointed mm-hmm. because, you know, Dorothy is a great example of this. The man behind the curtain, the wizard of Oz, there's magic there. She doesn't know how it works. The moment she knows how it works, her amazement and her awe of the situation and her, and, and her hope in the, in what the wizard is, it all goes away because now she's kind of been, it's been revealed to her. It's mm-hmm. no longer magic. You know, it's a trick. Yeah. Just, just like what we're seeing here. And so in, in a lot of ways, I think we, we are like this. I think this quote is absolutely true because we don't want to deal with that. We, we want to have that plausible deniability. <laughs> we want to, we want to put our head in the sand sometimes and hide. Um, because it's very much like expectations in that once we have them and we mm-hmm. give ourselves over to those expectations of being amazed and being surprised and believing in the magic, then it now has the power to let us down. Yeah. And I, I think that plays itself out in movies like the matrix. I think that idea is, is played with in, in, in a different kind of way. You have this idea of the red pill, blue pill and, um, I remember one of the characters said, you know, I want to basically, you know, you know, I want to live in ignorance because I like the idea of living in a, in a world where I don't know the reality of living in a incubation thing and having to be hatched or, or whatever to, to know what's quote real. And, uh, but even in this movie, there was a small moment that sort of became, you know, it was an, an extension of the meta narrative that we, um, that we recognize uh, it's a moment with Sarah as, uh, as Borden is revealing his trick with the gun and he shows it to her and he, she says something like, well, it's not really impressive when you know the secret now. And, and I've felt that same way. Like I've, <laughs> I've gone to magic shows and I, you know, I'm like, I love seeing how these tricks are done and I like being deceived, but it's fun. I, you know, in my head I think, Ooh, it's going to be fun. It'd be fun to know how that's done. But then when you know, all of a sudden the the intrigue is taken away and you don't really want to see it anymore. It becomes kind of dumb. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that you're right. That's kind of in a lot of ways how we live our lives. We like, we like having that half ignorance, half knowledge of something or at least having a sense of um, – of wonder. Uh, and, and I think that's, it, it's, I think it's where the power of twist endings come into play. 
um, and maybe specifically with some of M. Night Shyamalan's early movies, that that the twist endings became kind of his staple. And so when, you know, when when we're used to that, when it doesn't happen or when it doesn't happen in a way that just blows our minds, uh, we feel a little let down because that trope has sort of, you know, been used over and over again. And I think that's another thing that plays itself into here is to be bigger and better each time. Uh, the transported man isn't, <laughs> it's not, it's it's not transformed. It's just done bigger and better each time, you know, with Borden and then Angiers and then back to Borden and then finally Angiers with his, you know, you know, electricity or whatever. And so I think in a lot of ways that that idea of of being amazed comes from those two places of, you know, not knowing the complete secret or not knowing the secret, and uh, being more and more just astounding with the delivery of that. Yeah, and it also speaks to our desire as a culture, at least American culture specifically is what I can speak to of needing that next fix and that next thing that's better. Right. Because Mm -hmm. first it's the transported man and that's enough. People go see that people enjoy that. But then next door, it's the new transported man with a little bit of pizzazz. Mm -hmm. Then it's the original transported man. And then it's the, you know the improved the improved transported man, or it, it keeps getting bigger and better, and it's it's almost like an electronics upgrade, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, oh, well, I'm not gonna go see Borden's transported man anymore because that was last year. I need to go see the new transported man. I need to upgrade. You know, I need, I need yeah. the iPhone seven instead of the iPhone six plus because or the mm-hmm. iPhone six s because it's it's six months old. Like I can't. I need that next step up. Right. And we're always aiming for that, and so that's that's one thing that these guys are always trying to do is one up each other. It, you know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even in, in today's cinema, I remember was it was at last year seeing the early last year, seeing the trailers for Jurassic world and just shaking my head and going, really, you're going to, you're going to dive into this property again. It's the same plot. You know, what's the best way to keep dinosaurs from roaming and destroying everything. Don't create them. Right. But the thing was a massive hit. And it was awesome. It, 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 it was, I'll be the, you know, not the first to tell you because I wasn't the first one in the theater, but I'll be probably, you know, the hundredth person to tell you that it was great. And, you know, so I, I began to ask myself, you know, how does a movie like that succeed, um, using the same basic premise of the original one? Well, it's a mix of nostalgia and it's somewhat of a meta narrative. You know, everything had to be bigger and better. I think at one point in the movie, somebody said, Nobody cares about dinosaurs anymore. We got to create them now. We got to make them bigger and badder. And we've got to create a park where you can get like right up close to these animals. It's not just about riding around in a forerunner and looking at dinosaurs. Now it's got to be something even more. And and that says a lot about, about as a meta narrative, you know, why people went to this movie, at least in my opinion, that it was, it wasn't just nostalgia, but it was also the fact that it was a reinventing and a more glamorous version of, of the original, uh, at least in my opinion. And I think that the prestige really articulates this in the world of magic and particularly with these two characters of Borden and Angiers as a means to tell a similar kind of thing that we just want more. We want bigger. We want better. How can you top this? Even if it's not something new, um, it has to be, you know, what makes it better. And I think that's a challenge that Angiers 
in particular deals with uh, as an individual through this. Yes, I would completely agree. Um, he is the more direct when it comes to attempting to, you know, up his game with showmanship. You know, he's the one that we see who desperately latches on to uh, his wife Julia's, you know, added appeal, or ultimately to, um, oh goodness, what's ScarJo's character's name? I think it's Sarah, right? Nope, Sarah's uh, Borden's wife. Eh, well, we'll get there in just a second. Yep. Just... <laughs> um, I feel bad about that, but, um, you know, he's the one that is Olivia. It's Olivia. He's there the one go. that, uh, is, you know, wanting, needing to use Olivia to spice things up. Right. Whereas Borden mm-hmm. is just, it's just himself and well himself and Fallon, but no one knows that. And, uh, it, it just, it leads him this, this need, this incessant need to be more showy and to win this audience appeal you know, really plays out in this whole theme of obsession throughout the movie. And I mean, it's, it's ever present. It it is probably outside of the idea of just magic in general. I would say obsession is what this film is about Mm -hmm. to me. It's what I take out of it. I see two men who have very little redeeming factors about them. Um, Ultimately, perhaps we could find some redemption in one of them, which I may mention later. But for the most part, there's not a lot of good. It, it's, a, it's a constant battle. Uh, it's a constant matter of ego and selfishness. Uh, the, the women in their lives are simply there for their, their use and their enjoyment. It, it's never about giving. It's always about kind of taking. What can they get out of this situation? And then ultimately no one matters more to them than winning this battle between each other. Uh, they're willing to sacrifice almost everything. And ultimately they sacrifice their, their own lives, both of them mm. uh, to some yeah. extent. They, they kill themselves over this obsession. Um, and it's, it's, it's nuts. I mean, it really is nuts. It's one of the, the most painful to watch when you know what's happening a depiction of obsession that I can remember on film. Yeah. I, uh, I find it really interesting that Chris Nolan and company, and I think Jonathan helped write the, write the screenplay for this, how they are able to craft two distinct storylines with two individuals with who are both obsessed, but whose obsessions are different. At least they're acted out differently. Um, I think this movie, uh, which by the way, comes from a novel. I, I didn't know this. It's based on a novel. I, I didn't know uh, that either until, um, I was looking up some notes or making my notes and, and doing some research. And uh, I believe it actually is a lot, quite a bit different. <laughs> There's some like yeah. time travel and like ghost mm-hmm. aspects to the characters that I was, I didn't read a lot about it, but yeah, a, a lot of what, uh, apparently a lot of what from the reviews, people say it's worth reading, um, but don't expect an adaptation. Expect more of a retelling uh, when it comes to the movie. And more people have preferred the movie to the book, which I think is kind of unfair because you know Nolan and his his brother live kind of in another world when it comes to great storytelling. So it's kind of unfair. But credit to the to the to the novel for being the good source material. But what what I notice is that you have these two characters who have just very round character traits. You know, they're they're 
their stories are fleshed out in a very successful way, although not necessarily in a positive way. I mean, there's definitely a lot of negative here, but this, this story could have easily just been about Angiers or it could have just been about Borden <laughs> where the, the other, you know, each person's, um, you know, antagonist could have been just their, you know, their, their mechanism for doing what they did. And the fact is it was that, but you know, these guys could have, basically said, well, we're not going to really worry about Borden's character. We're just going to let him be the catalyst by which Angiers continues to drive. But they needed each other. And I think their stories together worked a lot better than their stories individually. I think if you didn't have Borden, Angiers wouldn't be nearly as compelling and vice versa because you don't have these two obsessions juxtaposed against each other in this framework of a common profession. And so you can find these common traits that exist, like what you mentioned, they both use their, uh, their loved ones <laughs> and particularly their, the loves of their lives, uh, to, to better them themselves, to better their careers. And they both, uh, sacrifice their lives quite literally in, albeit in different ways. But, you know, so you find common, <laughs> common, uh, um, what's the word common fates that, that happen and common fatalities, but you also find completely different obsessions that exist between these two men. And that's really what I find intriguing about this is it's a character study. It's a character study in two individuals who, because of their rivalry, live out their lives in completely different ways, but trying to seek almost the same goal. Right. Which is ultimately to win and it's mm-hmm. to, you know, be, acknowledged for their greatness um you know it's it's all about the success mm-hmm. to them you know having having a baby and having a wife and a life that's not the success it's making the magic it's it's doing the best the best trick you know we learned that from the very beginning borden we learn right away that he has this this trick Right, that that he can he he tells him right up front. He's like, you know, I have my my trick. It's my secret that no one can do, you know. And they're always trying to discover something else that will elevate them. But it's never about anybody else around them. It's never about Cutter. It's never about Root. It's never about you know Sarah or Olivia or anyone else. And it's it's uh like I said earlier, it's painful for me to watch sometimes because. You just watch these people spiraling down and it reminds you of people that you may know in real life somewhat because, you know, this is an easy thing to fall into. You know, pride is, is, is very much something that we can all struggle with. And so it's not unrealistic at all, to be honest. You know, it starts off. I love, I love how it's portrayed because it starts off so simple. You know, it starts off with, Oops, he killed your wife. And so you're going to go after him and you're going to shoot him in the hand with the bullet catch, right? And then it starts to just slowly become more and more and more vengeful, you know, to the point where they're willing to, you know, Angier's, gosh, he buries Fallon alive. I, I love the line when he's about to walk away and. Um, Borden is there 
uh, he's he's just given Angiers supposedly the key to unlock his notebook uh, to the cipher, and he he looks down at the pile of dirt and he says, or he says, "Where's Fallon?" And Angiers looks at the pile of dirt, and Borden's like, "Is he alive?" And Angiers says, "How fast can you dig?" And then walks off, <laughs> and then walks away. Right? I mean, like yeah. this this is elevated from just a simple rivalry of, you know, I want to be a little bit better to, I would kill you because you have a better trick than I do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's to me, that's, it connects to me because I feel like it's something that could happen to anybody if they let their emotions dictate their actions. If they let, they could let these feelings overcome them. And maybe in our lives, this doesn't play out in a manner of we're trying to kill the person in our office that is getting the promotion over us, but it could certainly uh, inform and affect our decision-making around those people and how we operate in an environment with people that we're competitive with. Right. But, you know, I, I think at some point we lose, and I'm, I'm saying this from an engineer's point of view at some point, I think he loses the real or at least the initial reason behind why all this started. Agreed. Like at some point his obsession then redefines what he does. And so I, and I think that speaks to, to us as a, as, as human beings in that it's, it's as if, you know, if you're fighting something for so long, if you've been fighting in a war for so long, you almost forget why you're fighting. You forget like what started all this or mm-hmm. when you're, when you have this ingrained bitterness in you over for somebody and it's, it carries on for so long and so long and so long and it wears you out and you just, you, you know, you, you're sitting in your, you know, in your chair one day and you're going, why do I hate this person? Or why are we at odds? And all of a sudden you kind of realize that it's, you know, the initial thing that caused that, rift between two people or between two groups of people is now not what's driving that rivalry or driving that, that, uh, that enemy relationship that it's just everything that's come on top, you know, that, that piles on top of it and on top of it. And I think that's kind of where Angiers is, is that by the end of the film, he has completely been swallowed, not only by his obsession, but everything that led up to that one moment where his wife is killed that he's almost forgotten why he's even fighting. I mean, I guess he hadn't forgotten, but I think that maybe he gets, I mean, what do you think? Do you think he, do you think he is very conscious of how his, you know, his whole self has changed? I mean, do you think he's, he has a clear uh, motivation or, or do you think he's sort of lost in what he perceives as one thing, but it's an actuality, something else in terms of what, what's driving him? I think he finds is it finds it is completely justified. I, okay. I I feel like, and this is this plays into that whole redemption thing I was talking about. I I feel like neither one is redeemed, and I think that Nolan gives us that in their characters intentionally. I mean, we see when Angiers dies. You know, and I'm going to talk about that that scene of him dying later uh, during my connecting point a little bit, but. You know, the the things he's talking about in those moments don't scream 
I'm sorry or I regret anything to me. Right. It's more like he's still fighting. He's he his his words are saying to Borden, "You don't understand." Not, "I'm sorry that it got to this." And then, yeah. and then you know, for Borden, it, it's similar. He you know, there's very emotional scenes toward the end with Borden that it's it's hard not to emotionally resonate with and go, "Oh my gosh, I feel for this guy." Right? Look mm-hmm. what's happening to him. Look what's about to happen. He's you know, being framed and he's going to die and he's going to lose his daughter, but he's going to lose his brother. But you know, it's kind of brought on by himself. (laughs) He kind of, he kind of asked for it. And so it's hard to find redemption in either of them because neither of them ever is willing to set it aside all the way to the end of Borden murdering Angiers straight up Uh one-on-one murdering Angiers. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't get the sense that there's a any sort of regretfulness in them. Right. And I don't I I guess I mean I don't see that either. I guess what I was what I'm still trying to get my head around is the the whole process for Angiers. I mean, his character kind of resonates with me more than uh more than Borden's in a lot of ways. And I just wonder that this progression that we see Angiers of going from you know, from the loss of his wife to, you know, getting the upper hand in his magic to doing everything he can to get Borden's secret to really just wanting to see him um, dead, which I think, I mean, I mean that the, one of those last scenes kind of, you know, kind of explains that where he tears up Borden's... <laughs> the prestige knows he, you know, he tears up those last mm-hmm. things. He's like, I've just, you know, I've got you. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm processing through that, I, I begin to think that, you know, here's, here's almost like a, like a sociopath, someone who has clearly progressed from, um, I guess it's always been a place of revenge, but it's been peppered with a sense of the need for recognition, the need for fame, um, but it, at, at its core, it's always been about revenge and whether that maybe, you know, when, when he lost, maybe, maybe when he lost his wife, he said nothing will ever, um, bring, you know, bring her back. And so, you know, maybe he, I don't know, maybe he realized that and just said, I've just got to do everything I can to make sure that Borden experiences the same loss that I do. I don't know. Maybe. I I definitely not how I read it, but I mean I can see it being a possibility. I I just see the man as I think I see the sociopath very clearly. I I don't think he mourns over his wife very long at all. I think, you know, I think there is some genuine sense of loss there, but it what it what that shows me is that at his core, this man has always cared more about winning or being that greatest magician yeah than he has about everything else because i yeah i agree with because that. even when his that. wife dies i mean he does mourn and, and and i don't i'm not saying that the man didn't love his wife i think that he truly probably did it's it doesn't it doesn't show us that but he moves so fast from any kind of mourning to revenge and obsession over needing to one up him that since we saw him trying to kind of want to one up him even before that 
mm-hmm. it feels like that's just his character trait and, well, it, yeah. and it becomes known it becomes you know exemplified yeah i think I, I i would agree i think that the death of his wife became a trigger point for him for whatever was in him this need for this obsession for fame and this to be the best magician to um to manifest itself i think the death of his wife gave board gave angiers uh borden as the target at that point true and you mentioned something earlier i wanted to hit on um or expand on just briefly you you were talking about sarah with the gun and how there's a very it's almost like a meta moment i guess i would say where she says you know this could you know once you see the trick it's it's not that exciting Mm-hmm. And I feel like the film Nolan does this throughout, and it's 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 just brilliant. I mean, everything about it, the way that the story is constructed, uh, being told through a journal, and kind of in reverse, and us not knowing until the end of the journal that oh, this was all a setup, and then realizing that there was another setup, <laughs> then done in reverse to the other character. Um, but there's so many tells when you watch this again and you know the secret. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of them are between Sarah and Borden. But when Sarah first tells Borden, and she says it multiple times, she's you know she says, "He, do you love me?" And he says, "I love you so much with all my heart." You know, and she says, "Today you mean it." And so then, you know, in hindsight, you go back and you're like, "Oh." you were telling us in that moment that they're, they're different men. Like she's called it out in plain sight. And yet what Nolan is doing to us, just like you explained with, are you watching closely? Like he sets this all up beautifully and he, and he sucks us in and he tells us to watch closely. And then just like a true magician, he misdirects, he misdirects our attention and yeah. while we're while we're looking one way, he's doing something over here, and so she's telling us that they're two different men, but we won't we won't believe it because we don't want to. And there's another moment where Borden um, or the boy little boy with Sarah, when she first meets him, he mm-hmm. asks her he's he's asking about the bird, right? He watches the magic trick, and uh, Borden slams the bird down in the cage, and we know that the bird is dead. And the boy is, he's trying to tell the boy that, no, no, the bird is alive. You know, it's okay. He's fine. And the boy says, yeah, but, but where's his brother? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's another moment where it, it's being called out again to the truth. And yet we're not looking at it. And there's, mm-hmm. and then Sarah tells Borden later, uh, when she tells him about the baby, Borden's first reaction is we should have told Fallon, you know? And all of these things make this movie so exceptional for mm-hmm. rewatches. And I think that yeah. that is a special thing that not many films can achieve. But it gives you a reason to go back and watch it multiple times and try to hone in on those moments and piece things together in a different timeline. It's like watching Memento again for the second mm-hmm. time once you know the story. Exactly. And another interesting moment with that, that sort of foreshadowed some things was a conversation. It was after the magic act of, uh, I think, Chung Ling Su, 
the um the, the Asian magician yeah the Chinaman Chinaman yeah and when Borden points out that the cripple part of the magician even out in public is part of the act I mean that's really f- well it's actually two things it's him more so than Angiers but it sort of foreshadows the fact that now Borden is going to be changing his whole life he's going to split his life in two in order to maintain this illusion and even Angiers who is showing um, his wife, uh, I think this is before she dies, he's, he's kind of trying to recreate that, that, uh, that trick by... <laughs> by he's trying to walk the... with the bowl between his legs, yeah. Exactly. And he has trouble realizing that, that it can't be that simple, which again <laughs> foreshadows the fact that what Cutter says, he's, he's using a double, you know? And he's like, no, it, it can't be that simple. Well, Cutter we tells him this over and over. Exactly. I mean, all movie long, he tells Angiers repeatedly, it's simple. This is the truth. It's right here in plain sight. But Angiers yeah. is just like us, and he, he doesn't want to believe the secret. He, he wants to be amazed, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's wonderful. But the thing that I find interesting about that last comment you made is the rewatchability and the hidden in plain sight idea being one of those things. But you and I, we've watched this, well, at least twice (laughs) and multiple times, obviously. But I know that there's been one occasion where I've watched it with you. There was my original time watching it and there's this time. So at least three times I've seen this. All three times I've loved it. And I'm thinking back to the idea of the, we know the secret. We know the magic trick. You know, so I was thinking, so why is this still so compelling? And it's because there's more of the magic trick than just the story played out. Because now we're looking for other things. Now we're looking for clues that are still part of the trick. Those, those hidden in plain sight gems that we don't catch the first, second, or third, or fourth time. All those layers that come with, with that just really make it that much more intriguing and that's what i think is great about just the idea of illusions and more complex illusions than anything else and magic acts in general is that it's not just about one trick for a magician it's really about a series of tricks and a series of illusions that make the act so great and that we suspend our disbelief and we say okay i know that there's a way in which they're not selling that lady physically in half but i'm just sort of accepting the fact that i don't know and even if I did figure that out, there's like 10 other illusions that they've done throughout their show that are still going to have me wondering. And so it doesn't take away from that, from that awe or whatever. And I think that that's what this movie does really well is it continues to show us small little illusions and, and little hints at the bigger trick being played on us, which we are constantly discovering and rediscovering. And then bringing somebody else in who hasn't seen that and seeing their reaction I think that's got some value to it as well. Oh, that you know what? That that leads in perfectly to something I wanted to mention about the movie in general and having watched my watched this with my kids, they they love magic tricks and we've gone to magic shows here and there. Um but they're big fans of the Now You See Me films, which obviously deal with some similar concept here of the magic and the illusions, um but not the same type of character study. Well, that was one of the best parts for me was 
when something would be revealed. And there's so many moments throughout this film and little reveals and little moments where your just brain goes, aha, <laughs> I, I get that. Uh Oh, maybe this something else is possible now. And I can consider this other thing where I would turn to watch and look at them. You know, I'd turn to my side because I knew something was coming and then the, the scene would take place and then they'd both quickly shoot their heads to me and their mouths would be wide open. That moment for me is something that, you can't force you can't recreate that um and it, it's just so genuine and it's such a joy mm-hmm. to take place in and so yeah. they got the same thing out of this movie that i get every time i watch it it's that sense of amazement and wonder i mean right from the opening we get the we start with the ending essentially right mm-hmm. i mean the movie is played at almost the entire the main plot points of the movie are given to us in the first 2 or 3 minutes it's incredible and we immediately forget about them as we get into the story we completely forget about it we don't even we're not thinking at all about the fact that man that Hugh Jackman is eventually going to be dead in a tank but they show us that in the first like 30 seconds of the film <laughs> mm-hmm. but then they show us the hats and then we see you know there's the moment where we see the cats um and, and this there's there's this constant kind of battle or discussion about magic versus science that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite scenes is at Tesla's when uh, Ali is talking to Angiers and he's just standing in a field full of light bulbs and he pulls one up and it turns off <laughs> and then he pops it back into the snow and it turns on and he's like, how in the world have you electrocuted the ground like safely and we're standing on it right that is amazing i mean and there's lines that speak to that where angiers mm-hmm. says he he really sums it up he says magic real magic like that's what this is and uh and then ali later when he's talking about tesla who by the way is perfectly played we should talk about the cast briefly um yes. he says oh no sir this wasn't built by a magician this was built by a wizard and that's just <laughs> those kind of lines and everything revolving around the magic of the show. Um, the scenes where they're, they're uh, creating different magic tricks. We see the inner workings of how the devices work on their body to make things happen behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I just, I watch it with big wide eyes and a, and a wide open mouth and I'm just like a kid at a magic show, but watching David Blaine every time I see this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the cast. The casting was just perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I can only just say that. I mean, I, I don't want to even try to de- define what perfection is in this case, but you just, you have each person, each actor owning their role because you know, Bale and Jackman are, you know, are our main people, but we, we even David Bowie, I didn't even recognize him the first David time I saw David freaking this. Bowie. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Is that, is that Gollum? Is that his assistant? Is his, is that, his, is that Andy Serkis? Yes, it, it is. is. You know, again, things that you don't realize the first time around because you're so caught up in the narrative that. Um, I think that speaks volumes about just the casting choices and the ability to use each one of these actors the way they did. I mean, for instance, I mean, just 
for Bale and Jackman playing their own doppelgangers, you know, playing Root and playing um, Fallon. playing Fallon. I mean, I, I laughed so hard just watching <laughs> Hugh Jackman playing Root, you know, and this drunk whatever. But at some point, I'm going, oh, these are two people. Like by the by the end of that the whole movie, I'm like, there were four people in here that they they really did have doppelgangers, and I'm like, no, no, those are the the same actors. And so even in that, again, this whole meta, like <laughs> they weren't doubles. I'm like Andrews. I'm going, no, it can't be a double. It's it's him. He's doing something, you know. And uh, and I just think that the 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 way in which uh, Chris Nolan and and his his crew of people just brought in these these uh just talented people to tell the story was great yeah they're they're amazing uh, top to bottom just amazing and michael kane he just adds so much to any movie um mm-hmm. I, you know i didn't realize he had had such a lengthy um honored career i honestly had no idea that he was an acclaimed younger actor for some reason most of my experience with him has all been his older stuff. Uh, But when I was, when I was doing some research, I I realized that he had all these films from, from way back when, when he was a young man and he won an Oscar. And so I I really want to go back to his filmography and work my way through some of it uh, because I know we both just love him so much. I'm curious what he's like uh, before he reaches old man status you know <laughs> um, crotchety old man crotchety yeah i mean he's status. clearly he's clearly nolan's muse um he, yeah. he has appeared in almost all of nolan's recent films starting with the prestige after that it, i mean he was in the batman series he was in interstellar um i'm not sure if he was in inception or not i think he was probably was i'm pretty sure oh yeah i think he was too so He's everywhere, and uh, I'm glad. I hope he continues being in all of Nolan's films because I love the guy. I, I just I can't get enough of him, um, and I think he plays a character here the way that it needs to be played. He's he's us in so many ways, screaming at them to just look at what's in front of you. Stop trying to overthink it and mm-hmm. be simple and be content. These are the things that he's preaching. Um, where we see them spiraling out of control and he's trying to stop it from happening. And, um, you know, no one's listening to him and no one's taking his yeah. advice. And I think it's fitting that he's the one who narrates the, the opening closing, uh, monologue about describing the three parts of the magic trick, because he is, he is the, um, you know, he is the rational part of, of the story. The one who, you know, I, 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 I'm a little hesitant to say that he, you know, that if there's a good guy in this, it's Borden, because I don't think it is. I mean, I think that Borden, even though, you know, he has a redeeming quality in that he got, gets his daughter and whatever, he's still a murderer. You know, he's still done these things. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of weirdness to me to see Michael Caine or, or, you know, Cutter's character, um, sort of, I guess he's looking out for the daughter and I almost wish that <laughs> he had taken the do- taken her away from Borden because Borden was equally as, you know, that would have made more sense to me, but 
he he just Cutter is is the rational human being in this movie, and I think that you need that when you have two extreme obsessive characters like this. You need someone to kind of, um, you know, synthesize them to to kind of balance them out as sort of that that bottom portion of this V of two extremes. You know. So here is how I read that. We never fully know who Borden and who Fallon is at any given time. We, we really can't. And that's one thing that I look for on multiple rewatches is I try to pick out who is who at what times. I would mm-hmm. love to sit down with you and watch this in real time in person and like notebook chart what we think from beginning scene of who is who. Like yeah. This is A and this is B and then try to track it. But there are multiple times when we see one of the characters really look out for the daughter. Um, when Borden, I believe it is, is fighting with Sarah and Fallon comes up quietly and puts his hand over her ears and walks her away. So mm-hmm. I choose to take out of this that one of the two brothers was exceptionally tuned in to being a father and was a good father because they were, they had different strengths. You know, one loved, one loved Sarah, one loved Olivia. They were, they had these different, they were different, but they tried to play the same person. And that's why there was a conflict because it never actually, you can't do that. You know, ultimately you can't be the same exact person. And so I choose to believe that one of them was a good parent. And so yes, the guy that lives ultimately does commit murder, but I also believe that it, Deep down, <laughs> he was going to be right to the daughter going forward. <laughs> I don't think it's redemptive, but I it doesn't destroy me inside to see him walk away with her. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't me either. But it's it's a hard lesson to to accept because, of course, we're the we're the you know the omniscient you know looking on you know, audience here. And so we know, and, um, is there, I I think the redemption comes for, for Cutter and for, uh, you know, Fallon's Borden's daughter, because she has a father and she's taken care of and whether or not, you know, I'd like to believe, and this is, this is me in my own heart. I would like to believe that if somehow every version of Fallon and every version of Borden and every version, well, there's only one Fallon, one Borden, but, every version of Angiers and Fallon and, and Borden were all killed. Cutter would take care of that daughter <laughs> because she seems to be the only character in here without any, you know, unable you know, that didn't get her hands dirty as these other guys did. And, um, and I, I think even to an extent Cutter did too. Well, no, I guess Cutter did as well. Cause he led Fallon to, to Angiers to be killed or whatever. But anyway, See, this is this is why we need like multiple podcasts to talk about this stuff. It does. It'll take you right down that rabbit trail. So let's go ahead and do our connecting points. Then you want to do yeah. that part and just yeah, yeah. Let's just just wrap it up because I think yeah, I've got to you know we'll, yeah I can't uh, we'll get uh, into the weeds too much. So for me, uh, the connecting point had to be the conversation between Andrews and Olivia just after she gives him the diary. So he sent her off to go work for Borden and she's all huppity puppity or whatever. Uh, and, and she's mad and we find out later, you know, kind of what her 
you know, the full conversation. We didn't get the whole conversation after she goes to visit Borden. But the conversation, she gives him the diary, and in it he talks about how much he wants to know Borden's secret, how important it is to fool the audience. And so we're getting more of a sense of kind of what is going on in his head, what he wants, and how he really wants to be the best musician. But there's a line that stood out to me, and it was when she says, it won't bring your wife back. And immediately he snaps back and he says, I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret. And then there's this long pause and he looks at her and he just, he, he tells her, um, just don't worry about it. I'll make it look like I did it. You know, I'll, I'll destroy his work. And so what we're seeing is two things. One, we're seeing how his obsession has become more important than this act of revenge. It's not about his wife anymore. Or at this point, as we talked about before, maybe it never was. Maybe his wife's death triggered this bigger obsession that just grew and grew and grew. And the other thing is that he recognizes that. Uh, he recognizes that it's at this point that he's now making a choice. And so this, and I think this is where the turn of the movie is. Um, leading to brilliant, uh, we can we can watch the the film with that obsession in mind, and everything following it just supports that idea. And this is why Angier's, it, yes, it, partially it's my fanboyness with Hugh, Hugh Jackman, but it's that's why Angier's is so compelling to me because I think he's a more psychologically fleshed out character. Not to say that Borden isn't, but Angier's is uh, my favorite of the two to explore. So that's it for me, man. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree with you. We don't necessarily see as much of Borden as one. Per- we don't know who we're getting. So we're always we're always getting a piece of the Borden total. And with Angiers, right. we're getting all of Angiers. Um, right. he's, all his cards are on the table, <laughs> in, in so to speak, <laughs> whereas Borden is much more close to the vest. So my um, connecting point is actually an Angiers moment, too, and it's 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 that final scene and I'm just going to read his quote and what he says in his dying words. So Angier after being shot is laying there and he says, you never understood why we did this. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple. It's miserable, solid all the way through. But if you could fool them even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And then, then you see something really special you really don't know. It was, it was the look on their faces. And that has always hit home for me because it makes me want to like Angier uh, because he, you know, it, it, you take it at face value and it almost seems like he cares about the audience. Like he wants to do it for us. But then you look at it and you reread it and you see just how deep his obsession goes. It's not about us feeling amazed. It's about him and him getting the pleasure of having caused the amazement. And we see this from him in two amazingly juxtaposed scenes during this film, one of which, the first, happens after Root's first performance and Angiers is below the stage. Root comes out, grabs the hat. The crowd goes wild for the new trick and Angiers puts his arms out 
as if he's about to receive, you know, bow to receive the applause. And he's under the stage and he can't actually see it. He can't actually receive it for himself. And then this becomes a problem for him going forward. As we see, he becomes increasingly frustrated because he never gets to be the guy out there. It's not good enough for him to have created the trick, to have made it work, to have made something amazing for the audience. He needs that for himself. And then later we see that same scene, only it's either him or his clone, we don't know, up on the balcony after one of his performances for the brand new Transported Man, and he's doing the same thing with the bow. And he's it's a great shot kind of circling around him as he's soaking up the applause. And it really, it just, in a nutshell, sums up his character for me. Because it's that deep level of obsession that even in his final words he he's he's so taken by it i mean it is so has so much control over him that he doesn't even understand it and it's almost like he's fighting against himself in that moment to you know make it he wants to say to borden that hey this is valuable when in reality, it's still just him being obsessed and needing that approval. Mm-hmm. And so I really feel with him, feel, felt connected to him in this moment. I feel like this is his most vulnerable and honest moment, his most heartfelt moment. I, I, I feel like more so than him mourning over his wife, this was him being and showing us exactly who he is. And to take it a little deeper than that, I really truly believe that speech and with when he's saying it was the look on their faces you know if you could fool them even for a second then you can make them wonder i really think this is nolan talking about movies you think so oh i absolutely do i think nolan is a master craftsman his films are deeply put together in a way that is meant to entertain us, is meant to amaze us. And this film is a great example of just exactly what he's talking about. If you could fool them even for a second, then you can make them wonder, and then you get to see something really special. And I mm-hmm. think he's talking about himself because that's what he's doing. He's, he's crafting this. He's making us wonder. He is getting to see our reaction to this thing that he has given us. He's getting to see the look on our faces. And so I think for him, I I don't know if it's the same obsessiveness that Angiers has, but I think that Nolan sees a little bit of himself in Angiers and in that character. And I I really think that's what he's saying here. And so for me, that's that connecting point. I, I love it. I I, kind of look forward to it every time I watch the movie to get to it. I just am so excited about it. And then I realize I'm going to reflect on it whether I want to or not, and it just kind of blows my mind all over again. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I I can I can see that for sure. I, I hope I hope because I respect and value Chris Nolan as a creator that he's not the obsessive portion of Angiers that that he's genuinely um, that first half where he just he wants that that awe and wonder to be expressed from his audience. And, uh, and that he's not just looking for affirmation from us. 
<laughs> but if he needs it, he's got it from at least two people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm quite certain that we will not be the only ones. <laughs> well, I love it. I love that we got to talk about this and hopefully uh, our conversation is valuable to others as well. Just thinking through this film, it's one that would welcome further discussion. Uh, you mentioned the Facebook group earlier and we have that. There's links to that in the show notes and on the website and all over the place. If you want to come join the Facebook group, uh, listeners, we'd love to have you there because um, it's it's where our magic happens and uh, we love to talk movies and we would like to hear your thoughts on this one and tell us what you think about differently. Tell tell me if you think I'm crazy <laughs> with my whole Nolan uh, meta beliefs or not, but uh, we'd love to have you there. If you want to talk to me more on social media directly, you can find me, Aaron, at Aaron L. White, A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, on Twitter, Facebook, and all over the place. Patrick, where can they find you? I am at Shoeless Patch uh, on Twitter and Facebook, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. You can also find me um, at my website, thisispatch.com. And if you want to connect with us as a whole, as we mentioned, the Facebook group is a place to do that, but you can also find us at feelinfilm.com. And if you like what you're hearing, we'd love for you guys to drop us a review on iTunes, use some words, and uh, just let us know how we're doing. If we're doing good, what you'd like to hear more of, what you like, what you don't like. We're always interested in your feedback to help us better the show and uh, give us some uh, some constructive criticism on that. So you can do that through the iTunes app or you know any uh, any any way you can get to there. Yeah, so. just just a note: you can't do it through the app. Unfortunately, it's one oh, of the, you can't. Uh, one of the big drawbacks sorry. is Not you bad. have to be in iTunes proper, the actual website program or the web the program on your computer in order to leave a review. So. Just keep that in mind if you want to do that. Do it sometime when you're at your computer because uh, if you try to go do it in the app, it won't let you. It's kind of silly. Boo. Boo, indeed. So next week we are going to be embarking on our first couple of episodes uh, without each other uh, for our main episodes. You are going somewhere. Would you like to mention that briefly? Yeah, in a few days I'm heading off to the exciting country of Kenya, Africa for a couple of weeks. So I will be out of pocket. Uh, at least from a podcast perspective and possibly from a social media perspective for the next couple of weeks. That is right, but the show must go on. So you will be gone for a couple of episodes, but we will be filling your spot with some co-hosts. And uh, thankfully, we have created some awesome relationships with other podcasters out there, and I'm excited to get a chance to have those guys on and talk through movies with them. Next week, we're going to be doing Serenity uh, one of my favorite sci-fi films. And if you are a fan of Firefly, you will know this well, and you will be very excited. And I am as well. So can't wait to talk about that one. <laughs> well, I will miss being on the show, but I'm glad you have some pinch hitters lined up, and I know that it will be amazing. It will indeed. So that's it for us. But until next time, as we always say, stay positive. And keep feeling film. Get in the zone. Get in the zone.